thank you for the opportunity to preach the word to you these years. And here's to continued opportunities to, to share the gospel with one another and to take it forward to folks that need to hear it. Amen. In fact, as we're going to see today, this was God Eternal's plan in eternity past that we would be here today and that the gospel would go forward because of his divine initiative. Holy Week is an eight-day swing from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. It begins, as was earlier stated, with Jesus riding into Jerusalem for Passover. Continues toward his resurrection after his crucifixion. We gather next Sunday, as we do every Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection, but it's a little bit more oomph because this is the place in the calendar when all of society rec recognizes Resurrection Sunday and calls it Easter Sunday. Over the past 21 Holy Weeks, I've sought to answer a question of, of why we do the Christian calendar the way we do, I've also asked myself if I should break from my usual consecutive exposition of a book of the Bible of Scripture for the occasion. And the answers that I've come up with are that we do the calendar for Holy Week the way we do because the Gospels do it that way. And here's what I mean by that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give the most of their space to the time of the final days of Jesus. If this interests you, I would commend a book to you by Kostenberger and Taylor. It's black covered. It's the final days of Jesus. And it just simply deals with that text in a sort of synthesis sort of a way. It's a very helpful little book. I would commend that to you. But one of the things that they point out is that from least to greatest, Luke gives 25% of the gospel space to the final days of Jesus. Matthew gives 29%. Mark gives 38%, and John, the gospel that we're going to parachute into today, gives a full 48%, almost half of the gospel to the final days of Jesus. It's compiled in chapters 12 through 20 of the gospel of John. In Luke, Jesus welcomes the outsider. In Matthew, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In Mark, Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. But in John, Jesus is emphasized as the eternal Son of God. And that emphasis is clear in the 17th chapter of God, of 17th chapter of John, that, he, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. I want you to turn there now with me, if you would, to John 17, if you haven't already. There are 26 chapters in this, or 26 verses in this chapter, John 17. Jesus prays. That's, that's what happens in this chapter. He prays. As we parachute right here into drop into John 17, I want you to notice the very last verse of John 16. It says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
and amen to that. And then Jesus prays in a manner to also teach us that the apostles would overhear it, would write it down, that we would have it now. It's titled The High Priestly Prayer in the ESV Bible that I'm reading from. And it's apt for where we are this Holy Week. Listen in the first five verses for Jesus' prayer for that very moment in time. And listen in verses 6 to 19 for Jesus' prayer for that generation. And then listen in verses 20 to 26, the very last verses, for Jesus' prayer for the future. Listen to how he prays now as I read God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be also be sanctified in truth. Now verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me." Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." May God bless the reading of his word. May we find grace as we listen to this gospel. So John 17 is about a prayer of Jesus, a lengthy prayer of Jesus. And as I've said already, breaks it into three parts. 
He prays for the moment in the first five verses, and then the lengthy part, verses 6 to 19, he prays for that generation, particularly for the apostles' commissioning in that generation, and then for the future, for the mission of God's people, for God's people, the mission of God for the future, for future believers. And there were aspects in this prayer that were unique to that very moment and specific to that generation, but there's also implications for us now, not only in the last stanza, but in the whole thing. So we want to explore that this morning, seeing that there's a structure to this prayer and a purpose to our seeing it then and now. Jesus promises elsewhere in another gospel, I will build my church. He says, I'm going to build my church. And so the church shouldn't be looked at as, as some ancillary extra for my otherwise privatized and individual life of faith. The church is something that Jesus fully intended to die for, fully intended to raise up, to empower, to carry his gospel to the nations, starting right with where they were. Jesus fully intended to build his church. His statement about building the church is surprising to the first hearers, I would say. You can read about it in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. But we don't think of ourselves immediately and oftenly as Christians as so empowered. We don't see ourselves as endowed with this opportunity. We think ourselves pretty weak oftentimes as Christians, don't we? We think that we're just kind of getting by, we're kind of hobbling through. I hope that today's text at John 17 will reinvigorate you by reminding you of whose you are and the power vested in you for the purpose of your life, which is to carry the gospel forward to those that are around you and to work with the church and carrying the gospel forward to the whole wide world. And I am thankful for this text. I'm thankful for the way that Dick Lucas, a, a distant mentor of mine from across the pond, I've read a lot of his work, he said this about this text. He said, To see that Jesus' chief desire is the Father's glory, John 17 shows this glory is achieved through the calling together of a people who know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent, and this calling is affected through the Son's work, the Apostles' message, and the believers' united witness. That's very true. And so let's take it on its parts this morning and find refreshment and empowerment for our labors as Christians. The first part is Jesus prayed for that very moment. That very moment. So he puts an accent on that right then, that moment in Holy Week. Look at John 17, 1. Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven, which is a common way in the Psalter discusses of prayer. We look up to heaven, we look vertical. He looks to heaven and he says, in the overhearing of his disciples, Father, the hour has come, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that, the, the, that your Son may glorify you. Now, this is interesting. The hour has come. This is the time. The time is now. I know what time it is. At the expense of stating the obvious in looking at this text, Jesus prays. Prayer is so important to not being frustrated in your Christian life. It has been said, simply, that prayer is conversations with God. And while that is not all that should be said about prayer, it is something that can be said about prayer. It's talking with God. It's oftentimes, as we do it in corporate worship, when we're leading in prayer for the group, we're repeating God's words back to Him in prayer. 
we're restating the words or we're saying the words differently to try to make sure that even our prayers are word-centered. And we have an entire theology behind that. We do that with reason. Prayer is conversations with God. Prayer is stated needfulness in a pride-filled world. It's stated needfulness. I, I need you. Prayer is a main job description for any would-be church leader. They must give themselves to the Word of God and prayer. And those two things are not separate, really. They're intertwined. The Word impacts our prayers. Our prayers are of the Word. In fact, this text itself says that Jesus purposed to leave the Word of truth for our sanctification. So it must be leveraged as such, used as such. As such. Prayer is a must for spiritual people. It's a focusing activity. Jesus most calls us to prayer in the final hours of His earthly ministry before His crucifixion. Think about it. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweat drops of blood. Think about this prayer here. When we are tempted to sleep on the job and be slothful in tending to the ordinary means of grace, coming to church, being involved in things of faith, Jesus reinvigorates us through weeks like Holy Week, not to press us down as irreparably broken, but to build us up through the ordinary means of grace by calling us to prayer again, individually, as families, and as the church family. So I ask you this very simply, do you pray? Do you prioritize prayer for the purpose of prayer than setting your priorities? Now, I'm not saying this is someone who has this mastered. In no way do I have it mastered. I'm simply saying that this is fruitful. It matters. When you pray, do you expect yourself to bring more to God in prayer or God to bring more to you? Do you pray expectantly? You might say to me, Pastor Matt, who in the world has time to pray? <laughs> I don't have time to pray. What man, I mean, really, what man has time to pray? I mean, we got stuff to do. we got a punch list, right? we got to get it done. And I would just say to you that the ultimate man made time to pray. Like, Jesus is, he's more of a man than you are, and I am. Way more. And John 17 is one among many places where when it mattered, when, as they say, the chips were down, he prays. I mean, couldn't he have built a house or something? He was a carpenter. He's praying. He's found praying. What a waste of time. Right? Until it isn't. Prayerlessness is a kind of pride that we all get sucked into where we live functionally as if we already know what God wants us to do in each moment. And His mercies are made new every day. We need grace every day, don't we? I know I do. You do. We do. So Jesus, I think he wastes time doing this because of the struggle that we will have with this discipline. I'll try an illustration in this first, this first aspect of this text in verses 1 to 5. And flattery is dangerous here, so, so assume flattery is not occurring with what I'm about to share with you. But have you ever been allowed to listen in on an important person's conversation with someone else? Imagine a few people talking. You're led to believe that because the boss left the door open, he was still in private, but he really knew you were hearing, and he didn't care, so it was okay for you to eavesdrop on what was being said in the room next door. 
Like when your friends finally, your friends finally let you in on the conversation by talking about important things in your presence. It makes you feel good as a young person, I bet. It's a sign of trust, or at least we think it that way. It's an opportunity. You pay close attention. They're talking about important things, things that you long to know about. Imagine as, as children, and I talk to the kids here, have you ever had that experience, and some of you are getting old enough to actually parse through this and know what I'm talking about, that experience where your parents talk about an important thing in the room next door, but they're talking about it where you can clearly overhear it, and you think to yourself, I wonder why they're letting me overhear this, and you just keep listening anyway because eavesdropping is kind of fun, right? And you know they're listening, you know, you know they know that you're listening, but it's almost like approved eavesdropping because they keep talking anyway, and you learn by overhearing that conversation. The parents are intelligent enough to know that you're hearing, most likely, and they're doing it as a sort of a, a, an instructive tool for you. It's like teaching you by letting you overhear them how they interact. The structure of it, as well as the content of the discussion, is what it is for you. So, so the, God, and we have to be very careful here, because every heresy begins with a misunderstanding of the Trinity. But God, in eternity past, existed in relationship. And we have come to know this, not because we invented it with Chalcedonian Christianity, but because this is how the Scriptures makes God known, as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. God has shared it with us, shared of Himself with us, or we would not know to elucidate a Trinitarian doctrine of God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And some might say, do you really have to believe in the Trinity in order to affirm biblical Christianity? And it's a fair question, because nowhere in the New Testament do we see the Latin word trinitas, trinity. Well, I mean, the New Testament was written in Greek anyway, but even in the Vulgate, in the Latin Vulgate, we don't have the word trinitas, trinity. But the concept is there. And, and what I would assert to you today is that our faith fathers got it right when they said the Trinity was a litmus test for sincere faith from the Bible because biblical Christianity, the Great Commission, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Father, Son, and Spirit, it's baked into the cake of the Bible. It's a concept that is there. And it's here in John 17. It's in John because the Spirit is assumed in this discussion because prior to John 17, you have these promises that it would be better if I go ahead and go because the Spirit's going to come. And the, the apostles are, are like you would be. If Jesus were walking around with us, you'd be like, you can't leave. You can't leave. I don't want you to leave. Stay with us. No, no, it's better for you if I go. How's it better for you if I go? Like, I don't get it. No, no, please stay. I know better than you do. Please stay. Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm going to go away. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going away, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave you the Spirit. You're like, Spirit? I mean, we want you here. You know? And there's this, this, this big misunderstanding. It's, it's always been a sort of a short-selling of the Spirit, really. It's always been that way. I had a professor that said that the, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, and he's never really been bothered with it or something like that. It's Dr. Ware used to say. I remember saying that a few times. But we do. We tend to think the Spirit, well, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a very good gift. It sure is a great gift. Because it's not a it, it's a he, like it's a third person of the Trinity. You got the Spirit at salvation, the Spirit indwells you, the Spirit empowers you, enlivens you, 
focuses you, you got the Spirit. Jesus said it was better. It is then. He's saying it's better for us, for Him to go, for the Spirit to come in this time between the first and the second coming. This is good. So it's assumed, but what I want to say is it's, it's as if here that this perfect relationship in eternity past, this totally unified relationship of the Godhead, one God, three persons, this totally unified relationship is on full display magnificently by letting us listen in on a narrative prayer in John 17. It's, it's Trinitarian. It drips Trinitarian. It's, it's like you squeeze John 17 and you get this doctrine falling out of it. it, it it's amazing, really, because this is, this is what you could take from this. It's a, it's, this, is, this is really helpful. So in eternity past, from the foundations of the world is what is the language that's used in this text and talking about pre-existent time, it's, it's, it's amazing, really. I mean, just head-blown. It immediately throws you into to grandiose, infinite thinking when you think about the way this is just versed. But he says, he says things about how we were one, and I want them to be one as we are one. So it's, it's, we, we think of ourselves as, in, and this is where we get this whole thing wrong. It's where, we down, it's where we downgrade prayer. It's where things just start to get a little wonky, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but there's not a lot of details with that. What he's doing is saying, it, we think we invite Jesus into our party of what we're doing and, and who we're united with. And instead, what's going on is the Godhead, through the work of the Son, is saying, hey, I want you to be a part of what we're doing. I'm inviting you in. We had this in eternity past. We're going to have a better party in eternity future. I w- I'm inviting you. Come on in. It's, it's, it, that's the gospel. Like It's out there for you. And it is the apex of misunderstanding, and frankly hubris, for us to come to his invitation and sort of change the rules of engagement in our own mind and be like, well, you know, you kind of fit my schedule here, and I got time for you there. And I want you to be a part of this problem, but I don't really need your input on that thing. And I mean, that's just not the gospel. It's just not. It's, a, it's just full-orbed, holistic. It, it's everything. And that, that's, that's why the world hates it. But for those he's calling out of the world, we come to love it. Like the purposefulness of him, of him bringing us in, inviting us into this conversation. Earlier in the Gospel of John, it says that, to, to all who receive him, he gives rights. Namely, the right to become children of God. But, but it's to all who receive him. It's not to all writ large in the world or anybody that's ever heard anything about Jesus or anything. No, it's to all who receive him, he gives rights. So what I want to encourage you with this morning is that you would receive him. If you've been that person that is dictating the terms of your engagement with God, and this morning you're getting overwhelmed, you're getting monsooned by the avalanche of His grandeur and His glory and His preexistence and His eternality, and you realize that you're a created person and that you didn't create yourself, and you're starting to see your, your obligations to something bigger than yourself, I would simply say you just receive the gospel of Christ, that you're a sinner, that you don't have it all figured out, that Jesus came and died for you, He rose again, that you might rise again from your death, and have eternity with Him. He's invited you into His plan from eternity past to have for Himself a people that would be one as He is one, united as He is united. And that unity is not 
it's, it's, it's not sentimentality. Unity, as one said, has never been a very good rallying cry for unity. We're not just, oh, it's just all of us in a little boat together. We're just having a great time. It's not what it is. It's unity in the word of truth. It's unity in what God has given to us. That's the unity that he calls for. But how would we ever have unity in the body of Christ if it weren't for his work? I mean, we are a messed up people. We can't agree from here to the double doors in the back on one thing, let alone ten. I mean, if you think that you're the only person this morning that's frustrated, you are wrong. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody gets frustrated. You're frustrated with your kids. You're frustrated with your spouse. You're frustrated with the pastor. The pastor's frustrated with you. We're all frustrated. We're not united. How do we get united? It's the loving work of God in eternity past worked out in the gospel of Christ, ushering us into a brighter future. It's all of God. And that's the viola moment. Like That's the phew, eureka. There it is. That's the thing of John 17. And so he invites us to listen to his prayer that we might learn to pray, yes, but that we might know the, the grandiose nature of the one that we're praying to. I feel like I lost you, but I had a lot of fun getting there. Look at John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth. A lot of glory, a lot of giving. We're to give glory. He says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Accomplished comes from the word family, teleo or teleos. We've made much of the word, the noun teleos, in our church because of the idea of maturity and completion. Like Colossians 1, that we are supposed to be laboring amongst those in the church that we might be maturing in Christ and presented as complete in Christ on the day of the Lord. So we made much of that Greek word, teleos, in that context. This is the same word. It means finished, accomplished, complete, mature, depending on context. So here, it's a point in time, in that moment, in that hour, where Jesus is glorifying God on earth through the work that had been given Him to do, and it is a work that was fully accomplished. So one of the things that I think, one of the pushbacks we have to prayer is that we won't have enough time to do the building that we're supposed to do if we take the time to pray. And I, I think that way too sometimes in my carnality. But what Jesus is modeling for us is you have exactly enough time to accomplish the work that God gives you to set out to do. And the closer that you get to the heart of what God has for you in any given day, any given moment, any given season the more the superfluous stuff kind of goes to the side, the focus on what's supposed to be done gets done. We aren't going to a cross at Calvary in first century in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, we do have work to accomplish, and Jesus models here through His finished work that He will help us finish our work. Differently, we often, oftentimes, we think we have to do everything, and so we wind up defeated into doing virtually nothing for God's purposes, eternal and unfolding. And even in life, sometimes we're defeated because we, we have a sense in which everything has to be right, especially the planners in the room. We have to plan everything just right. And, and, and then we wind up not getting it done because everything didn't go just right. Here's the thing about God. He gets perfectly planning and rest. Like the whole rhythm of the thing, He gets it totally right. So the more that we're in tune with His will rather than our own through prayer, through word, we wind up 
magnificently able to better discern what needs to be accomplished on any given day or week. I shudder to think that we would enter this holy week without prayer. Specifically prayer asking God, God, what do you have for me to accomplish this week? No, 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 not what, what I want to accomplish. What do you have for me to accomplish? I mean, I started this, this week that way uh, myself because I knew, well, I knew I'd be standing in front of you talking about it, so I figured I, I figured I better, you know. Like, I got a cousin that's he's the number one baseball prospect in the state of Missouri. He's a fantastic baseball player, and I really want to go watch him play on Wednesday. I really do. Like, he plays, in, he plays close enough by I could probably get there and love to go see him play. But I was praying, like, God, would you like me to accomplish getting there for, for joy? Or do you want me to not get there because of the work during Holy Week that you have for me to do? That's just a small thing, but that's a decision. I want God to give me illumination on whether or not to do. Like, it's not a sin for me to go watch my cousin play baseball. It's also not a sin for me to prioritize doing something here. You understand? Like, so I've asked for wisdom for that. This is just a small little example. Please don't go away and like, oh, I really hope you get to go to the baseball game. Please don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, not a, it's just a, it's a, a trivial example. He's going to go hit a home run whether I go or not. I mean, he's a very fantastic baseball player. But here's the thing. Am I supposed to be there or not? God help me, right? What, what is your things this week? Like, am I supposed to do that or not? Is that a priority or not? And you think, in your wisdom, you think you know, but I think this text leans us into asking for, for help because this first point is Jesus prayed for that very moment, and that moment had a specific meaning. It was the cross, but it also has a reflected meaning for the apostles, first hearers, and for us, lifting our eyes upward, asking for guidance and for help. Now, second point in this text is Jesus prayed for the apostles in that very generation. He prayed for that very generation. Look at verse 6. It says that Jesus manifested your name, lots about the name in this text too, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So the whole world's not being saved. It's people out of the world that are being saved. And so his love here is specified specially to his people. And it says, yours they were, past tense, verse 6, and you gave them to me, present tense, first century A.D., Jesus' ministry, and they have kept your word. So these apostles, except for one, that proved to be defunct, which he knew anyway would happen. There's these 11 that basically kept the word. Now, they're going to have a rocky start in terms of getting the church going and before Pentecost and all that, and that, that, that's more of the events of Holy Week that, that kind of unfold as we go here. We'll probably have some talk about that during our Good Friday service because that's, that's part of the story is these apostles... They, weren't, they were not perfect. We're not either. We know that. But they were pursuant of sanctification. They could be said here that they have kept your word as much as they understood it at that point. Verse 6. And verse 7 says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So everything that's been shared with the apostles is from God in eternity past. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So, I mean, lots could be said. Your, your mind, there's more that could be said than what will be said. But just suffice to say that they accepted the propositional truth claims of the gospel that Jesus brought to them. They believed them. They particularly believed that Jesus was the sent Messiah. And they would get a little delusioned with the fact that he didn't nationalize the faith for regional Israel right then and there and toppled the Romans. But they got over that, and they figured it out. And the New Testament is a, is a testament of that. In fact, you may not know this, the Apostle John 
didn't write the book we're reading from until nearly the end of the first century. We can cap the canon of Scripture around people that were alive to see the resurrection of Jesus. The Gospel of John in the family of books that the Apostle wrote, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, which we recently frequented. John probably wrote this Gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, late in the first century. So he's kind of reflecting on this prayer of great importance as the Spirit is carrying him along to write down this one of the last books in the New Testament canon of Scripture, the Scripture that you, that you have when you read the Bible. So the apostles in on this accept this word and see the word of Christ as true. Jesus told them lots of truth that wouldn't make fuller sense until his passion was complete. But John 17, 6 is an admission that Jesus finished this work of telling God of the name to the apostles given out of the world for the purpose of testifying to the world. They have this, this mutuality. They haven't pulled all the biblical data together yet, but they know that Jesus came from heaven. They affirm the sentness of Christ Jesus in verse 8. And they understand that Jesus is limiting his prayer to those that trust him, those that follow him. And then later, of course, to those that would. But he's limiting his prayer to the believers and not the whole entire world. So a takeaway here that we have is, is that there are times, lots of times, that we should limit our prayers to the believers. That we should actually pray for those who profess faith in Christ. Often what happens is we reduce our prayers to generalities about God saving the world. And truly, you should be sharing the gospel and you should pray that the Lord would empower you to do so. That is the end of this text. But don't run past the fact that an implication of this text is that it is not only okay, but it is encouraged that you say specific prayers for the specific people that have already professed faith in Christ. And, and the specific specificity of the prayer is outlined in the rest of this section of verses, verses 6 through 19, in the second half of it, verses 11 to 19. And the specificity that Jesus prayed for is probably instructive in structure for us, although it's not exhaustive. He prayed that they would be protected in the faith. Or, or differently, another translation might say guarded, same, same Greek word. They might be guarded or protected in the faith. And he, he emphasizes this word in that passage, 11 through 19. Protect them, guard them. Why? Because he knows that the evil one will seek to, to tempt them. So he's made this utterance in another place, I will build my church. A shocking statement in the time, still somewhat to us. And, and then he's talking about these apostles uh, helping to lay the foundation for the church. And when he's praying for them, he says of them, please protect them, knowing that there's going to be hazards toward them, temptations. And in a way, he, he similarly plays, prays more positively for their sanctification or, or for their growth in the gospel, for their for their increased understanding of the Word, for the Word of truth to be in them. It talks about this in this text in, in John chapter 6, verses 11 to 19. He says, sanctify them, grow them, uh, consecrate them. Now, for us, that probably carries a moral connotation because we need moral sanctification. But for Jesus, it did not. Jesus was already perfectly moral. So, so what's going on in John 17, 19? Look down at it real quick, because this is important, I think, to the second part of this text. John 17, uh, 19 says, And for their sake, that is the apostles or that generation of believers, those that were overhearing this narrated prayer, for their sake, Jesus consecrates himself. 
Well, it's not a moral consecration as if he's not already morally consecrated. Consecrate or sanctify, the Greek word hagiats, hagias, or in this, the verb hagiatso here, is the same word that's translated sanctify in verse 17. Uh, it's the same word translated consecrate in verse 19 and then sanctified again in verse 19. Context is key. What, what is, he, is he trying to convey with this verse? Well, it's not, I don't think, moral sanctification so much as it is the set-apartness for the mission that Jesus is modeling through accomplishing completely what he's been called to do. And in, in being set apart for this holy week, he is modeling for future followers, as well as for those that were right there hearing this prayer and witnessing this, that he wants them to be sanctified, to be consecrated in a similar way, to be set apart, giving their life even unto death for the purpose of this gospel cause. And so when he's praying for them, in, in, the in, the, in the deconstructive possibility way, he says, protect them, guard them from the evil one, because we know there is real temptations. But he also prays in a positive way, build them up. I will build my church, sanctify them. Sanctification is part of the building of the church, certainly morally for us, but specifically the accent, I think, here is on the consecration of every single believer for the gospel cause. He makes it a point to make this statement, and so the statement has a point. He says, verse 19, For their sake I consecrate myself. Why? That they may be sanctified, consecrated in truth. Remember I said earlier, it's a very important point. Unity is not a sentimental thing in the gospel. Unity has a content structure to it, and that is the right interpretation of the words of Scripture applied to our lives. The unity is to be around the propositional truth of Jesus and given by Jesus to the apostles for us. This is a treatise, really, the second point, on Jesus ensuring, giving insurance to, that we would get the right book. These are the apostles that would be responsible for the foundation of the church, for the completion of the canon in the first century A.D. You got the right book. Jesus prayed so. He not only always gets his man or woman, he always gets his work. He always gets done what he is to, to, wants to get done. Heaven and earth will just as soon pass away before one jot or tittle of this book will pass away. So th this is not just a treatise on prayer, John 17. It is also a statement about your need to be engaging with this holy book. Jesus prayed for that generation. I want you to note something in John 17, verse... There's a couple places if I can find it. My eyes aren't what they used to be. There we are, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Do you see this utterance here? It's, it's unique to this passage. Holy Father. You see that? Holy Father. What an interesting term. You have, as one commentator said, the transcendence meeting the relational. The transcendence, holy, meeting the relational, Father. What a phrase. What a, what a description. Holy Father. You know, holy 
different than us. Our holiness is derivative from His. It's dependent on His perfection. So in our pursuit of holiness, we're totally dependent on Him as always having been and always will be and is holy. Be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. Leviticus, 1 Peter, holy. And it would just be bone-crushing for us to approach Him were He not our Father. Relational. Because your fathers were imperfect, you might not be able to imagine the wonder of your Heavenly Father if it weren't for His perfection, His holiness. But also, if He were holy, but He were not relationally your Father, how would you feel the connection relationally with Him? It's both and, it's not either or. Now, this is an interesting segue to our third and final point, and I'll show you how. Jesus, second, prayed for that generation. And thirdly, Jesus prayed for the future. And what I want you to look at is in John 17. And again, my old eyes here, they're not that old, but they're not that good. I probably need to get glasses, but I'm fighting it right to the bitter end. Verse 25. O righteous Father. Do you see that description? Again, the relational, O righteous Father, or O Father, rather, but also this magnificent attribute reflecting the transcendence of deity righteousness it's both in you need them both and god knows that and he gives it to us this third and final point is jesus prayed for the future it dovetails with the whole thing as i said there's unique applications to the right that time and certainly for that first century for those apostles but there's also applications for the second century century onward for us and Jesus is, is, is bringing it home in how he ends this prayer, literally to your home. He's bringing it home. Look at, at, at verse 20 in this, this overheard conversation, this prayer. I do not ask for these only, for these apostles and these only, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. For those who will believe. Jesus, in his last hours, he's facing Golgotha. He's Facing the way of the cross. And are, are, are you a believer? I mean, it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but I'm asking you to affirm for yourself. Are you a believer in this gospel? Do you believe in Jesus for salvation? Okay, if you say yes to that with sincerity, you need to know that on the authority of John 17, 20, that he took time out of his very busy, painful, betraying week to pray for you. I mean, how's that for I don't have time to pray? I mean, he takes time out of his very busy week. I'm going to look at myself in the mirror, too. How's that for I don't have time to pray, Pastor Matt? I mean, and he stops and he prays for those that would believe. We must have time for the mission's imperative, mustn't we? I mean, he's structuring, he's modeling for us how we should pray, too. In many ways, this is the Lord's Prayer. And he does so by praying for those that would believe. Would you pray for these little ones to believe? And so they're in pretty good homes, Pastor Matt. I think they probably will. No, 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 no. You're missing what saves. It's not pretty good homes. That's not an excuse to have a bad home. 
But what saves is the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray that they would? All of them. Born and yet to be born. We've got a couple of mamas we're praying for in the church right now. Carrying with child. We've got new baby. We've got new baby that's not here today, but new baby born Finian that was born on Thursday to Rusty and Stephanie Levings. Isn't that exciting? Would you pray for Finian as representative for all of these little ones? Would you pray that those future believers would come to become believers? So, and again, it's just almost like trying to, trying to peruse the divine mind in eternity past. Well, Pastor Matt, I mean, why would I pray for it? I mean, he's going to make it happen, isn't he? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of me praying? I don't know. He just told us to. Like, I, mean, I could give you a flowery theological answer probably over coffee, but I don't have time for that here. I just simply say to you, I just do it because he said to. I mean, get out of your head about it. Well, I mean, he's going to do it anyway, so why does he need me to pray? Well, you take that up with God. He said to do it. He modeled to do it. Do it. I mean, it was John Piper, I think it said, you, you either pray for missions or you help send missions or you disobey or something like that. It was a pray, go, disobey. I got it all wrong. I get it wrong every time. What is it? Sin? Receive? No, it's not receive. It's pray. You either go, you send, or you disobey. That's what it is. You go, you send, or you disobey. It's John Piper in missions in his book on Let the Nations Be Glad. You either go yourself to the mission field. You send somebody by you know, monetarily supporting them, prayer supporting them, things like that, or you just disobey. And I think that's on full display. Like This, to me, is a Great Commission passage. It's an Acts 1-8 kind of passage. I mean, what is he doing in John 17, 20? I do not ask for those only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles, which is recorded where? Here. Where that went. And look at verse 21, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at that purpose statement. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That he says, he asks, he prays that they will be one. So in praying for future believers, in praying for the gospel to go forward, in praying for missions, praying for our impetus, for our understanding that, he prays, interestingly, for the unity of the future believers. Now, this really deserves an entire sermon, and we will not be able to do that. But let me just, just a word or two. Just a word. So I had a brother pastor that told me he spent like seven sermons in John 17. I said, we don't have time for that. I don't have time for this. Do one. But this is such an important point. You remember how we talked about God's perfect unity within himself? You remember that? And we see that from Genesis 1 onward. Perfectly united. He not only invites us into his unity, but he ensures that we will be united. And I know, I know that we face disunity and splintering in the body of Christ today. But that is not a reflection of his character or our outcome. We are destined to be united, and we are better for when we pursue that unity in the truth, but unity amongst believers and unity amongst churches. It's why we will pray for some other church than our own during this prayer of supplication today. It's because we're learning that inter-church unity to the best that we are able to accomplish this side of heaven is representing the unity of the Godhead and it affects our witness. This is the main point here. You often think of the Great Commission as being an individual thing that you do and it's overwhelming. 
and you've missed the gospel message if that's how you interpret it. Because it is a corporate thing that we do. The Great Commission is for churches planting churches. The Great Commission is about an us, not a me. I do things, it's true, but it's about an us. How could the Great Commission be accomplished without an us? Jesus didn't say he would build a me, he said he would build a church. And that universal church is built by lots of little local churches all over the world. And he is praying here that we might overhear his prayer that we would be united as he is united and that that unity would have a purposeful effect on the desirability of future believers accepting the gospel. If, if you say that you are for evangelism and missions and you simultaneously don't go to the local church and don't invest in the building up of the saints in a local body, it's, it's antithetical. It's, it's, like, it's like working against itself. And you say, well, how in the world can that be true? Because it says it right here, rightly interpreted. Just, just look at it. He prays in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent us. Then just keep reading. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, what? That they may be one. That's unity. As we are one. I in them, verse 23, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. So that the world may know that you sent me. One. Unity for the purpose of evangelism and missions. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as, I, even as you loved me. This love fest of the Trinity is being thrust into our lives as members of local churches even as we seek together to see the gospel go forward to people that haven't yet believed. And we pray as such for our babies and everybody else's babies and for the whole world. In verse 24, the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So that's, that dovetails with verse 5, before the world existed. So we are listening to a conversation that didn't just begin in the first century. If you're still trying to control this gospel and put it right where you want it in your otherwise well-manicured life, this verse should just totally blow that up. Like, if this is God, we, we profess that He is, it says here that this love was expressed in the triune God before He made stuff. Before the foundation of the world. Look back at verse, at verse 5. And now, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, Transcendent, Relational, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then fast forward to the verse that we're in, before the foundation of the world. It's got to mean something, folks. It can't mean nothing. Let us not kick against the goads. <clears throat> verse 25, O righteous Father, holy Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Seems to be quite enough for him at that point. Oddly to us, to our ears. Verse 26, finally. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, this is not unloving, it's very loving, it's, it's true love. God is love. The love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ in 
you. So when, when you as a body, when, when, you, when you pursue reconciliation, I won't say that you're doing evangelism, but you're certainly promoting it. Like in the body, when you, when you engage in the body of Christ local, when you, when you join the church, when you, when you show up, you're promoting witness. When you, when you pray for the other believers, you're promoting witness because you're promoting the unity that is necessary for effective witness, evangelism, and missions. You, you, when you show energy for the local church, you're promoting witness. And the converse is true. We're, we're not promoting witness, no matter what we say, about the importance of the mission's mandate if we do not pursue the unity of the believers right where we live. The unity among believers is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's what an unbelieving world will for some find believable. So if you've ever thought of corporate worship and prayer and Bible study and pursuing unity amongst all of us kind of broken people among members, if you've ever thought of it as separate from missions, I want that totally changed today by the power of God through his word these things are integral to evangelism and missions he wants us to be about that and even today he wants you to be evangelized if you're an unbeliever because of the unified witness of us I mean somebody didn't throw a rotten tomato at me when I said all this stuff today we're unified around this message that Jesus was sent as the promised son of God for your salvation it's true so you receive that man you're in you have rights become children of God but we'll flesh out what that looks like baptism, and then taking the Lord's Supper, engagement with the body of Christ. But you're, you know, th- this is, you're, you're in when you receive. You receive the gospel, and you're in. So, so we, Jesus is not against your getting this today. He's for it. He prayed for it. He wanted it. We simply receive it and declare it and live it. And he prayed this prayer in John 17 precisely so you would get it, even this day. And he gets glory through your getting it. Lamenting your lameness does not give him due glory. Get it. Receive it. It's about him. It's not about your worthiness. It's about his righteousness. It's about his holiness. It's about his fatherliness. Let this Holy Week be a fresh start for you. Or a brand new start, as I've said. We want to welcome you on this journey of faith. Talk to us about spiritual things. Have a coffee with us. Talk to us after the service. Slow down on the way out. Send us an email. Shoot us a text if you have our numbers. Talk to us about matters of faith. We've prayed for you like this. We've prayed that you would come. You're here as an answer to our prayer. Get that this morning. We are not holding, keeping score and holding grudges. We're glad you're here to hear this message. We prayed it would be so for those that would believe. You need only receive Christ's free gift. God is eternal life. He's not the way... This text says he is eternal life. He is eternal life. And then therefore Jesus is elucidated as the way, the truth, and the life. There's an invitation for eternity waiting for you. It's embedded right here in this text. We want you to join us. Let's pray. God, we want to take just a few moments here to let these things seep into our souls. We might be found faithful.
Thank you for, Lord, guiding our ears to be lended to this message today. Father and Son, thank you for changing our spirit, for making us new inside.